when I was in college, I had a buddy who decided he didn't want to work a summer job. He instead was going to relax all summer long. And how he was going to fund this was he was going, the first two weeks, he was going to buy some raffle tickets and sell a fake raffle. So he went out and he bought his raffle tickets and he went door to door for two weeks straight, door to door, almost 12 hours a day, door to door, knocking on doors to sell raffle tickets. Well, the joke was on him. I don't know if he just didn't look like a trustworthy person. Maybe, uh, maybe he just didn't have the right sales technique, but he didn't sell a single raffle ticket. So he ended up spending more money and still had to get a summer job, but he was two weeks later than he had hoped to be. I tell you that story because there are schemers. My buddy was a schemer. There are schemers, counterfeiters, people in this world that want to manipulate you, that want to convince you that something is real that is not real. One of the most notorious counterfeiters of my day, or I should say in my lifetime, is actually a wine counterfeiter. Yeah, wine counterfeiting. It's, it's a thing. It's actually a big business, wine counterfeiting. And this guy's name was Rudy. I can't even pronounce his last name, so I'm not going to. But Rudy, Rudy came onto the wine scene in the early 2000s came onto the wine scene, and he wasn't selling any wine yet. Instead, what he was doing was inviting people to these tastings, and he would spend $200,000 in a single night on wine, blowing through money. Can you believe that? $200,000 on wine. And people loved it. They came, and he, he became a part of a group called the Angry Men. Now, these men were angry because they'd bring $30,000, $40,000 bottle of wines to a party, and they'd be so mad because somebody else would only bring a $100 bottle of wine. And for some of us, that's like blowing our minds. Like, I thought the $100 bottle of wine was the expensive bottle, right? No, they were mad because other people were bringing the cheap stuff when they brought the good stuff. So they decided to make a club, and in this club... You had to bring the best. And so he joined the Angry Men Club, and they would come and gather and, and drink $30,000 bottles of wine together. And they would mock those peons that would only spend 100 bucks on a bottle of wine. He walked the walk and talked the talk of a wine connoisseur. So when he began to counterfeit wine, and bring it to the auctions, nobody questioned it. Maybe they didn't question it because they loved the parties that he threw. Maybe they didn't question it because they wanted to go drink the wine that he would bring for $200,000. We don't know. Maybe they just wanted to be a part of that special club. One night, he held an auction and sold wine and made a record $25 million one night. When the FBI finally caught wind, they, they broke into it, or they didn't break into his house, I shouldn't say that. They, they raided his house, 
They raided his house and they found very specific notes. See, he had been take, studying wine for years. He had been going to all these wine tastings. He had joined the angry men. And he had been building this knowledge of wine. So he had all these meticulous notes of what different wines tasted like. And they found all of his contraptions on how he could counterfeit wine. If you talk to the experts on wine counterfeiting, they'll tell you that the reason why Rudy was so successful is because, in all honesty, those people wanted to believe his counterfeits were real. They wanted to be a part of the party, they wanted to be a part of the cool scene, and they wanted to own that expensive wine. He easily manipulated the wine industry because people wanted to believe it. I think the same is true with counterfeit teachers in our Christian community. They walk the walk. They talk the talk. They study our language. They study our doctrine. And they do it all so that they can begin to twist the gospel. They can begin to twist theology. And so often, Christians easily believe it. Because we want to. They begin to teach stuff like, you can be your own God. You don't have to worry about God's judgment. And we want to be our own God. We don't want to believe that there is a God who will judge the world one day. And so we begin to buy it. We want to believe that God is easily manipulated. And so we follow the false teachers. Others know that grace is a scandal. That it is our nature to want to deserve things. We want to earn our righteousness. And so they begin to tell us that we can earn our righteousness, that we do deserve righteousness. And because we want to be legalists, because we desire to be legalists, because then we, then we can prove that we're righteous. Then God actually owes me something. We begin to believe it. There is no shortage of counterfeiters in this world. Anywhere you find value, you will find counterfeiters. The same is true with the gospel. The gospel has infinite value. The fact that you are a sinner, you have shaken your fist at God at some point in your life and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my own way. And because of that, you deserve eternal separation from God. But God, being so gracious in his love towards us, came and paid that price. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in him. And you can have eternal life. You can have this right relationship with God. That is something we all desire. If you look around this world, you know that we live in a broken world. All of us have hurts. There's a reason why the foster care system exists. Because we live in a broken 
world. And we all know it. And so there are people that want to benefit, that want to profit off of that. And they come with a counterfeit gospel. And there's no shortage of the counterfeit gospel. There's no shortage of counterfeit. People who want to manipulate you so they can profit off the brokenness of this world. That is what 2 Peter was writing about. We're going to do something a little unique today. It's a tradition we started a few years ago. And as we work through a letter, you know, we examine every word. We, we look at the big ideas. But sometimes we get lost and we can't see the forest from the trees as we do that. The original audience with these letters would hear it in one reading. I think oftentimes we get, we think we're going to get bored with that. But the writer, so Peter, would have written this and then he would have handed it off to someone to read it to a congregation. And they would have sat down and they would have heard the whole thing in one shot. And something I think is pretty amazing about that. You start to grasp concepts that you didn't grasp before. So Peter would have taught him how to read it. He would have told him to emphasize the right syllable. I didn't know if that was going to land or not. So. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> he would teach him how to emphasize the right syllable. He would, he would teach them how to read this. And then he would go to these different areas and he would read the letter out loud and they would hear it all in one shot. We've been taking oh, two months now working through 2 Peter. And what I want to do is we're going to highlight a couple of the major themes. And then we're going to sit and we're going to read through it. I'm going to read through it, I should say. I'm going to read through it and I want you to listen. If you get easily distracted, you can close your eyes. If you fall asleep, we won't judge you. But I want you to listen. Listen as we read through this. So Peter is writing to combat the counterfeiter. We've figured out in 1 Peter that he was writing to encourage people to, to grow in grace. There was persecution in the church. Nero was burning Christians to light his garden. And so he was writing in 1 Peter to encourage them to continue to grow in God's grace, to stand in his grace as persecution was ramping up. And in the midst of that persecution, these counterfeiters, these false teachers started to arise. They knew that they could manipulate Christians and they could gather influence and power and wealth. And so they started to rise. And Peter, his last letter, and he knows he's going to die soon, so his last words are to encourage us to stand firm in God's grace and not let the counterfeiters capture our hearts. To not let the counterfeit teaching turn us aside. So he starts off with theology. He starts off with letting us know who we are in God. So he begins by saying, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Meaning, you don't need that counterfeiter to come in. You don't, one of the keys of the counterfeiter is trying to tell you that, they, that you need them. You need me to live a godly life. 
You don't understand real theology, so you better turn towards me so I can teach you real theology. That's what the counterfeiter tries to tell you. But what Peter is letting them know here is that God has given us all things that we need. We don't need the counterfeiter. If there is a pastor telling you that he that you need him, it's because he wants to manipulate you. You do not need me to grow in God's grace. You do not need me to connect you to God. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to get in the way. God has equipped you in all things. So he reminds us that he is, his divine power has granted to us all things. Through the knowledge of him who called us. And this term knowledge is epigenosco. Epigenosco. And it's more than just facts. It's more than just facts. It's a relational knowledge. So I can spout facts about celebrities, right? When I was in high school, I loved football. I was in Denver, so the Broncos were my team. I knew John Elway's facts. I could tell you all kinds of facts about John Elway or Terrell Davis. I knew all about Carl Mecklenburg, which a lot of you don't even know that name, right? I knew the facts about these guys. But I didn't have a clue who they were. There are a lot of people that know facts about God. They study theology and they use it as a weapon against each other. And so they could tell you the five points of Calvinism or why Calvinism is wrong, or they could tell you all kinds of different facts about the Old Testament and they can twist it and turn it, but they don't actually have a relational knowledge of God and they don't actually believe that God is good and that His grace is lavished upon us. There is a difference between facts and a relational knowledge. Now, a relational knowledge will often include facts. I have a relational knowledge of Jen, my wife. I better have a relational knowledge of her, right? I, I know facts about her, too. I know her birthday. I will confess something to you right now. When we first got married, I didn't know how to spell her middle name. On our honeymoon, I bought the tickets for our flight, and I misspelled her middle name. She still gives me a hard time about that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I have the facts now. I can spell her middle name for you, if you but don't put me on the spot. Now, <laughs> now I'll question myself. But, but I have facts about her. I know her birthday. I know when her parents got divorced. I know when she graduated high school. I know the facts, but more importantly, I know her. And I have a relational knowledge of her. I know not just when she likes to wake up, but how she wakes up. Not just when she goes to bed, but how she goes to bed. There's this relational knowledge. And she has that of me. There's an epigenosco that we need to work through. We can't just memorize facts of God. We've got to have a relational knowledge of Spending time quieting down, listening to him speak to your heart. Spending time in worship, singing praises to him. Those are ways to build your relationship with God. I love, love, love Awana. I think it is a great 
ministry. I've also known a lot of Awana kids that walk around with arrogance because they had facts of God. And they could correct a lot of a lot of adults. They knew their stuff well. But they were missing that relational piece. And how many adults do you know now that walk around with facts? And they could beat you down with an argument. And yet they're missing. God's grace and his mercy, those relational elements of his love. So he encourages us in the epigenosco of God. And then he gives us these ascending steps of how we can grow in our in the grace that God has lavished upon us. He gives us these ascending steps that we can grow in. And then he goes on to remind us about the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which means that we can trust Scripture. So one of the things that the, the, the people who twist Scripture, who, who are counterfeits, they want to twist Scripture so that they say we can't trust Scripture. And what he's doing is he's going to give us theology, and then he's going to encourage us that we can trust Scripture. And he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can trust Scripture. And then after he outlines this theology and how we can grow in grace and how we can trust Scripture, then he begins to describe the false prophets. And he says that they will bring in destructive heresies. And I think we need to take a moment out and talk about the difference, or what is a heresy. Because we often use this term flippantly. Or we disagree with someone theological, theologically, so we call them a heretic. Well, you don't have the right church governance, you must be a heretic. And some of you don't even study church governance, so you're like, what on earth does that even mean? Well, you must be a heretic if you don't study church governance. <laughs> I'm kidding. But we use this word flippantly. And so we think that just because we disagree with someone, they must be a heretic. But a heresy is a specific attack on the gospel. That's what a heresy is. So we can disagree on church governance. We can disagree on a lot of different issues. We can disagree on how the church should be governed. We can disagree on, on women's roles within the church. We can disagree on whether or not deacons are an actual office of the church. We can disagree even on God's foreknowledge and predestination. And that's not a heresy. A heresy is an attack on the gospel. Number one, that God is holy. And because he is holy, he is just, and justice will be served. That God will come in judgment one day. If we attack that, that's a heresy. Saying that God is not holy and just. Another attack is on Jesus. This is where I think the majority of attacks come from. That Jesus wasn't really deity. That Jesus didn't actually exist in the flesh. It was one of the first heresies. So it's an attack on the nature of Jesus himself. And then there's attacks on the atoning death. 
Jesus didn't actually die for your sins. You still got to work for it. That's a heresy. And another one is the resurrection. That Jesus never rose from the dead. That's a heresy. A heresy isn't just something that we disagree with in terms of theology. A heresy is a direct attack on the gospel. And we need to be careful about how we use that term. So these have destructive heresies. And he continues to describe them. They're insatiable for sin. And they entice unsteady souls. The unsteady souls here that they entice are those looking for something to satisfy. Unsteady souls are looking for something to satisfy. That's why Rudy could get away with counterfeiting so much wine. These were unsteady souls. They were looking for wine to satisfy. They wanted to be able to brag about their wine collection. And he easily twisted their desire. The counterfeiters within Christianity are trying to sell you something. And they look for unsteady souls. For those people that are trying to satisfy and looking outside of God to satisfy. The only thing that will truly satisfy in this life is God. And when I put my faith and trust in him, and I know my hope is securely in him, then I can find joy and I can find contentment in every aspect of my life, no matter the circumstances. So I think about when my first wife died. I could find joy and contentment in God during that time of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't going around happy-go-lucky at that moment. But I knew that there was greater hope. And I knew that God could satisfy. As we begin to say goodbye to Eliana, I can be content, and I can have joy. I know that God is greater. When we don't find hope in God, when we don't understand that we can be totally fulfilled in God, we will look for other things. And it is when we look for other things that the counterfeiter will begin to entice us. So they entice unsteady souls, and he, begin, he continues to describe them, and then he gets into their argument. For they deliberately overlook this fact. They intentionally do not see this fact. The fact is clear. But they do not want to see it. Now, we see this all the time. We see this all the time outside of Christianity. We see this all the time in politics, don't we? There is something that is clearly going on, but a politician clearly overlooks it, intentionally overlooks it because they want to manipulate you. And we see it so clearly when it comes to politicians. 
We see it so clearly, I should say, when it comes to the other side of the political aisle. We often don't see it so clearly on our side of the political aisle. But we don't often apply it to Christianity. There are counterfeiters that are very intentionally twisting scripture. They see it clearly. It's not that they've got the facts wrong. But they are intentionally twisting it to make an argument and to manipulate. So they are deliberately overlooking this fact. And, and the point is that Jesus will not come in judgment. That's the argument they're going to make. And so then Peter gives them a counterpoint. And he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some counsel us, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the argument was, God is slow, where is the promise of his coming? He's not going to return because we haven't seen him return yet. And what Peter says is, don't mistake his mercy for apathy. Don't mistake his patience for apathy. Because he will come, but he's he is patient towards you because he desires that all turn towards him. All come back to repentance. If he had come three years ago, how many of us would not have been saved? A year ago. How many people on this earth would not have been saved for all of eternity if he had come yesterday? Every day, people put their faith and trust in Christ. So he's waiting. He's patient. Because he desires you. He desires you to come to repentance. So he makes his argument and then he gives us the therefore. The therefore, because of this, because God will return, but he's being patient, this is how we should then live. And he concludes that section with, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Continue to grow in the position he has placed you in. He has taken you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive together with him. And you can turn back to chapter 1 and the ascending steps to know how to grow in that grace. With that in mind, I want you to sit. Close your eyes if you need to. And listen. Just as the original audience would have listened. Look for major themes. Listen for words that are repeated. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the epigonosco of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with epigonosco, and epigonosco with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted 
that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, that though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were called along or carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of them, of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, as for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the, ungod or the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who 
loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing, washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But, ac but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord 
and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Dear Lord, we recognize that there are too many times in our life where we don't believe your word. Where we believe something else will fulfill us. Where we turn our hearts and desires towards anything besides you. And it is at that time that the false teachers take advantage. Lord, help us to grow in that relational knowledge, not just the facts. Help us to, to know those facts, but Lord, help us to know so much more of your goodness, of your mercy, of your grace. Help us in our deepest and darkest moments to know that you fulfill every part of our heart, and that even if everything is destroyed, we can turn towards you and worship you. Even if we lose every relationship, we can still turn towards you. And in that, Lord, help us to be full of joy and contentment and continue to grow in the grace that you have lavished in your name we pray. Amen.